0: It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan nine from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira and poor Johnson as the walking dead. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense, for it could be happening right now.
1: Sticklish business, any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick
2: together.
3: the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez.
1: I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis.
3: This week, we are talking about 1959's Plan 9 from Outer Space. And we have a very special guest in the ticklish business. I say HQ, but we are all scattered to the wind. So it's really a virtual HQ. But we are so happy to be joined by the lovely and amazing Diana Ellis. Hi. In case anybody didn't know that they are related. This is Sam's awesome sister, who I did not know was a big Ed Wood fan.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think he's the greatest. Well, not really. He's the worst, but you know.
3: (laughs) He was the best at being the worst, is what we would all agree. Diana, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What your classic film loves are? Do you blog? Fill us in on why you are so awesome, other than being Sam's sister.
0: I'm actually not blogging at the moment, which I should probably fix, because I love writing and I love classic films, so I really should mesh those two things. Right now, I'm only on Twitter, at Kid Cassidy's. I got into classic movies the same way my sister did. We had a grandmother that was very much into, well, the movies that were popular in her day. She collects memorabilia and she introduced us to a few movies A Dome for Blonde stands out. It just continued from there, but I have to say that my sister is the one that dragged me into this whole crazy fandom. I've just loved it so far, and I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad that you guys could have me on here.
3: Is this the first Ed Wood movie that you had ever seen? And have you seen others? This is the first Ed Wood movie I've seen. I actually saw,
0: of course, the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp movie first. And that was what made me realize that the sky even existed because I was into classic film, but not so much that I would have even heard of Ed Wood. I saw the very famous Johnny Depp adaption where that's widened the horizons for everybody to- have not known about this guy because obviously he kind of died in poverty and his films were unsuccessful that was what made him so successful later then i was like oh my god these movies cannot possibly be this bad so of course i had to see one for myself and somehow it was even worse than i thought it was going to be
3: for everybody is the johnny depp version of this story which is ed wood is that how we all came to know Edward? For me, that was.
2: It was for me. I don't have a cooler origin story like a really sassy aunt that had very unique taste. It was also via Tim Burton, which I, I guess is a good nod to what he was doing with that film. I saw... Ed wood
1: before i saw plan 9 from outer space but i had definitely heard of plan 9 before i saw ed wood if that makes sense i saw ed wood i love it that is such a great movie and then i went on to see in a similar vein as diana i went on to see plan 9 I, think I saw plan 9 for the first time three years ago four years ago i think the first time i saw it was in color back when they had both the color and the black and white on hulu I had heard of Plan 9 before I saw it and before I saw Ed Wood, but I hadn't actually seen Plan 9 for quite a while after that.
2: I do think I watched it right away. I love any film that's about a filmmaker or where you see the scenes. Like the recent Fozzie Verdon, I love rewatching the originals as soon as I've seen it or watching them for the first time. So I think I probably went and rented Plan 9 the night I got home from seeing Ed Wood
3: for me, it was similar to Sam. I had definitely heard of Plan 9, but I had not seen it. I had seen Ed Wood, and then I eventually went back to watching this film, and then I had read several books. I've only ever seen Plan 9 from outer space. And I feel like that's really all I need to see. This is the high point of his career as much as it is. And I feel really bad that I did not get Larry Karaszewski, who wrote Ed Wood on this podcast, because I know he would have been on it. Shout out to Larry Karaszewski. Ed Wood is one of the more infamous directors to the point that now I feel like he's just normal. He's on all the lists of being the worst director of all time, that it's just not even original to use his name anymore. That's really fascinating. A guy who in the 50s, was making movies on the cheapest of the cheap, telling stories about transgenderism and cross-dressing, and then eventually ended up making softcore porn and then died, has become this bastion for the unnamed director of classic filmdom. It's always going to be very weird and fascinating, and also the apotheosis of white male directing. I feel like if Ed Wood was working in Hollywood today, he'd still have far more attempts at making movies before people would just be like, you know what? You're done.
2: That said, and maybe it's because I was introduced to him via the Tim Burton vehicle, the fictional taking of it, which imbues more natural sympathy because you're seeing a full character. The idea of having any insight to this director... In my mind when I saw Plan 9 for the first time versus if I'd seen it on its own, I probably would have been a lot more dismissive. There's something to me about a director like Ed Wood that I find so much more inherently interesting than someone who is probably more competent, but less ambitious and out there. Plan 9 from Outer Space, especially I love that the original title was Grave Robbers from Outer Space because that is just a great title. It's a great pitch. I could pitch that now to people who've never heard of this film, because sad but true. There's something about his mind and how he was thinking of film and just didn't have the budget or the finesse to back up the creativity. I would have loved a world where Ed Wood would have been paired with a producer who could have helped bring some of those ideas to a more satisfying fruition. You know what I mean by satisfying? I don't think that's the right word.
3: No, exactly. If you watch this movie and you've only heard about it, a lot of people expect this movie to be inept filmmaking, which it is. It is inept filmmaking. But at the same time, you can see the bones of a classic Hollywood style. The reason why a lot of people give him a pass when they talk about the worst directors is that Ed Wood was attempting to make a movie. He directed in earnest. He felt that these movies were really good and they warranted the best that he could afford to give them. He never set out to make a terrible film. And that's where a lot of people, when they talk about the worst directors of all time, they give Ed Wood that exception because he never deliberately set out to make bad movies. He just was hobbled by budget and the lack of a script writing ability and the lack of a directorial eye.
1: The really sad part of that situation is back then there were so fewer roles in the making of a movie that nowadays if edward was around he would probably be such a great art director or film publicist or any kind of creative mind that could take those big concepts and help translate them onto the screen director maybe that wouldn't be the best role for him. Maybe it wasn't, but he did have a really interesting creative mind and he knew what the audiences would like to see.
0: What comes to mind is when you take someone like George Lucas, when he came up with a Star Wars idea, he was just the small time filmmaker and he had a bunch of other people that he was working with that rein him in where he had good ideas. Other people who were maybe more competent in other areas were like, no, Luke Starkiller isn't really a good name or other things that he was going to run away with. They were like, oh yeah, let's hone that in and try and make it better. If you compare that to the prequel, he was acting on his own and he didn't have that influence around him anymore. Obviously, when it's a one-man show, you can George Lucas made the Star Wars prequels with this huge budget and it was still not great. And Ed Wood was pretty much a writer-director with no budget and his movies also kind of suffered from the same. If he'd had people around him that were better at filmmaking and could help him and he wasn't just doing it on his own with no money, I feel like that would have helped him a lot.
2: When I mean him pairing with a good producer, I would also put a strong writer in there. And I love the use of George Lucas because I've never once drawn that parallel But there is something interesting there that Ed Wood had this idea for world building and for really unique concepts. And I wish we saw more of that. The idea that this is an interplanetary threat from aliens, but that the aliens are seeing the humans as the actual threat, which is a very Doctor Who concept. But for films, especially when this was made... I can't remember if this is before or after the day that Earth stood still, which is also that humans are the bad guys, but that idea... It was after. It was after. It was about eight years after. But that idea, that's a unique way in, because normally we have to protect the planet from the bad aliens. So I love that Ed Wood, similar to George Lucas, was this pioneer and visionary, but his execution, when not bridled in, feel like he's someone who, as a director, would have I could see him babbling, babbling ideas, but having a screenwriter tighten those, and then a producer saying, we can do this section and this section, but not, finessing what he was doing. Love it.
3: Thank you so much. We should get into the plot really briefly before we start to deconstruct things and then people are confused. Plan 9 from Outer Space, it starts out as one movie, and then it becomes another movie, but also still trying to be that first movie and a lot of it had to do with personal issues behind the camera this is a story about an old man played by Balukosi whose wife dies and his wife is Vampira aka Mylanermi. i don't know when he married Vampira but apparently she's dead despite the fact that there is a 40 year age difference and that's being kind between the two of them at the same time, two aliens, Eros, played by the wonderfully named Deadly Manlove, and Tana, played by Joanna Lee, are planning to invade Earth by resurrecting the bodies of dead people, including Vampyra and Bela Lugosi's unnamed old man, and also the inspector, played by Tor Johnson, who was investigating... The strange things that were happening at the beginning. At the same time, you have airplane pilot Jeff Trent, played by Gregory Walcott, who gets involved because he sees a flying saucer. But the government tells him, no, you didn't shut your mouth. You didn't see anything. And You have stuff going on with the government where they're like, we have to shoot these aliens down and stop them. Those are all the plots, right? I didn't miss any wayward plot that develops in this
2: those are all 187 plots, yes.
3: Those are all the plots that develop in a movie that is an hour and 19 minutes long. A lot of that has to do with limitations on Ed Wood's part. So the plot line involving Lugosi was just they were playing around with a camera and they decided to shoot some footage of Lugosi in his Dracula cape outside of Tor Johnson's house and they didn't have a movie Bella died, and at the same time, Ed was like, I still want to make a movie, but I have this footage already, so what we'll do is we'll just add it into the movie, and we'll get a narrator to give us dialogue about who this guy is, and then we'll just integrate that into the movie that we're already producing. We need to have Bella Lugosi involved in the plot, but he's dead, and we don't actually have... Aliens that can resurrect him. So what do we do? We get my wife's chiropractor to play him. It doesn't matter that he looks nothing like Bela Lugosi and he's about thirty years younger and about six feet taller.
2: (laughs) I do like the inventiveness. I've seen that myself more recently in indie films of people who've shot something that went askew. Normally, it's not because a famous silent movie star died in the middle of their production. But people have this footage, they want to use it, and they're reverse-engineering a story to make it work. That's pretty inventive, and I love that he used it. I don't agree with him, maybe, that it's always that successful, but it's still a fun undertaking. Other than the stand-in body not lining up all that well. One of the problems with Plan 9, to me, I don't even have a problem with the ricketiness of... The sets, I love what they've come up with for the cockpit of the airplane. There's something about it that I'm like, oh, that's just inventive and fun. And I get it. Those guys are flying a plane and stewardess comes through the curtain. Sure, fine. It feels like child theater. What's the Wes Anderson film? Rushmore. when He's recreating films. It feels like a play of a film. There's a lack of urgency for so much of it. And I don't know if it's because when the undead come alive, they're so slow. But there's that amazing scene where the old man is in the woman's room. And it's the slowest chase around her bed in history. Did anyone else sense the pacing or have anything with that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Diana and I watched this last night together to prepare. And While I was watching it, I kept telling her, why is the wife taking at least five seconds to react to every scary thing that happens to her? There's literally five to 10 seconds of dead silence while she's just staring at the person slowly walking at her. And then she screams. "Ah!" It makes no sense. Her delayed reactions... At first they were funny, but by the end they were so ridiculously frustrating.
2: They could have trimmed 10 minutes easily just of getting rid of the frames of her gearing up for a reaction. And it does weigh on you. He also had a good editor
3: supporting him. The editing in this movie is worse than Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously. But it's just so inept because you're going from scenes that are filmed in total black, middle of the night... And it's obvious that it's being spliced in with footage that was filmed earlier in the day. And then they're going back. My mom was watching this with me. And she said, at one point, the cop says, well, we're going back to the cemetery. She told me, yeah, they're going back tonight. And I was like, yes, yes, they are. When Drea brings up the comparisons to a high school recreating a movie, that's what I enjoy about this movie is how cheaply you can feel and at the same time it's not cheap enough that it looks like it's being filmed in someone's house I've seen low-budget movies that are obviously filmed with a grainy camera in somebody's living room there are moments in this film where they go to the cemetery and they're all coming out of the crypt and they're all bending really low to get out because it's the smallest styrofoam crypt in the world Or the fact that the Trents, their house is only the backyard and the bedroom. And they have the highest fence around their backyard because it's obvious that it's a set. What Edward gets applauded for is, as Drea mentioned, his ingenuity of how he had these things on the cheap. The model UFO kit for the airplanes. It's not a hubcap. It's a model UFO kit that he utilized to make the UFOs fly through the air or the fact that he essentially told people, hey, you want to help get my movie made? I'll put you in the movie. So there are obviously non-actors in this film who are given a lot of speaking lines. This feels like if you've seen any other low budget movie from the 40s or 50s, I think of like any of Bela Lugosi's other movies towards the end of his life. What is it? Something, the Brooklyn gorilla movie that he did with the not Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, but the other guys that were like discount stuff like that. Even with a classic film, that's a bad classic film. There is still that veneer of Hollywood filmmaking. Nothing looks like it's being filmed in somebody's backyard. This doesn't look like a stag film.
2: I do not have an intelligent thing to say. I just want to point out the backyardness of it, that there are several meetings with military officials that take place on someone's patio, and I'm here for it, and I wish more films embraced that.
3: Isn't there literally a scene where Lyle Talbot is obviously on a set just looking through binoculars? Just looking. I don't know what he's looking at. He's supposed to be looking at flying saucers and planes through the air, but it's obvious he's just looking at the set looking at the sky
1: i totally pointed out when i was watching last night as well see everyone was saying hubcaps or different things that the ufos look like i kept making jokes that it looks like a bag of jiffy pop it does i kept saying like don't shoot at it all the popcorn's gonna fall out another thing i
0: loved about that scene the one with lyle talbot just staring up at the sky is when the soldier walks up and he's like are you worried about this and i'm like Worried about the alien invasion that you're shooting at right now. He was just so casual about it. Are you worried about this? And I was like, should he be worried about this? Because I'm not worried about this. No one else in this movie has any emotional investment in any of this.
3: Well, that's really my biggest problem with Plan 9. And I say that Plan 9 isn't just one big problem. Is that it's so many different genres. Wrapped into one. And I wish if anything it had picked a genre. Because it starts out as a zombie film. And then it transitions into a sci-fi film. The problem that I have is that a zombie film and a sci-fi film. Have two very different sets of genre expectations. This movie seems far more content with being a sci-fi film. Than it is being a horror movie. Even though it does have horror performers in it. So you have Vampira. Myla Nurmi, who is a legend, I love her so much, and she's just left to sonambulantly hold her hands out and stare dead-eyed into the camera. She doesn't even get the Tor Johnson dead contact lenses that he gets or anything like that. She just gets this blank look. You really don't understand, aside from the fact that Ed really wanted to keep that Lugosi footage, why any of that is included.
2: The vampira inclusion along with Bella, it was this thing of stunt casting. Who are we going to have on the poster so that people will come and check this out? They always do that. They'll have like a huge picture of Danny Glover on the cover and then he plays the therapist in one scene at the end of act two in something. I got a very stunt casting vibe from it Also, I did get a sense of Ed Wood's love of them as performers. Vampire scenes are ridiculous. And I agree with you on the weird hybrid of genres. There's something about the uniqueness of vision of even combining those in the first place. But it's not smooth enough. I would love to have seen this. Someone subverting a lot of tropes from... Horror films, classic zombie horror, and then melding it with sci fi alien stuff. That's great. That's fascinating. But it's so bubbly that it steps on that. And so the stunt casting just draws out that it's not well thought out rather than helps it move smoother. Maybe he thought if he had those people. They would have enough shorthand with them that you'd get something deeper from it, but it's more of a sore thumb situation.
1: I was telling Diana last night that There's a big difference on screen in all of these characters. There's a big difference between a good actor who's doing the best that he can under these conditions and an actor or a non-actor, as Kristen says, who obviously can't be helped. And you can definitely see the difference throughout the movie with all of these different actors and characters.
2: And it's one of those things, I wonder if I wasn't so enamored with the idea, the general premise of Plan 9 that if I would stop making excuses, it falls short in so many ways. And some of that, the performance of it is so hard. A lot of the performance issues speaks to, I look at a lot of his casting as something that he saw performers as almost aesthetics only versus emotional conduits. Even in the small thing, like the pilots and the airline attendant, there's a woodenness there. It's, Touched on in the Burton film, but if you look at a still, yes, these are people in a cockpit and this thing is happening, but he doesn't encourage or coax out a performance. For him, it was almost enough that they looked good, which maybe goes back to why the pacing is off or why poor Vampyra is just wandering across the same three dead trees for all eternity.
3: That's what's really interesting about this movie is the idea of what Ed Wood was calling out. A lot of people make this movie out to be a lot smarter than I believe it is. But at the same time, Ed Wood really was coming out at a time when Oddly enough, he was saying what a lot of other big Hollywood filmmakers were saying regarding stuff involving nuclear power and extraterrestrials. We we mentioned The Day the Earth Stood Still as being this movie about the need for global cooperation. And it's easy to see why Ed Wood would have made a sci-fi picture because the 50s was dominated by sci-fi pictures. A lot of what he's saying here is the idea of not necessarily global cooperation because Eros and Tana are evil? I don't necessarily know if you're supposed to think they're evil. They're inept. But they keep positing this plan like they're attempting to get themselves noticed. <laughs> like, that's the worst thing. They don't really want to invade. They just want people to acknowledge their presence because right now there's this blanket denial of extraterrestrials. And they're resurrecting three dead people. To make humanity realize that they're real. A lot of this wasn't thought out that great. It's also worth pointing out that around 1959, The Twilight Zone had premiered. Which, watching some of these scenes with the Trent character in the cockpit... Would not be remiss in an episode of The Twilight Zone.
0: I got very super strong Twilight Zone vibes from this movie as well, except just with a smaller budget, even than The Twilight Zone, which is saying something. The whole idea of um, the aliens looking to be seen rather than, oh, we're going to conquer your planet or take us to your leader or something, maybe that connected to obviously his cross dressing, which he pretty much incorporated into every other aspect of his career. The whole idea of, well, we just want to be seen and accepted. There's some obvious parallels that can be drawn there.
2: Tell me the parallels you're thinking of. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, the aliens want to be seen like, oh, no one notices us, no one sees us. And he was obviously hiding his cross-dressing. You compare that to Glenn Glenda, which I saw about a year ago. It's about how he wanted to be accepted as someone who cross-dressed. And I felt like him wanting to be seen as a cross-dresser and also as a normal human being, there could be some subtle parallels drawn between that and the aliens wanting to be seen rather than just
2: conquering Earth. Got you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: See that I could definitely see that, especially if you listen to some of the Criswell lines, which we didn't even talk about. Criswell, the quote-unquote psychic who opens our movie. What are the last lines of this movie that the person that you're looking at could be an alien? On the surface, plays like it's a bastardization of the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a movie that Ed Wood seems to have heavily heavily cannibalized for this movie but also if you look at his personal life and what he was trying to hide this idea that person next to you could have some weird sexual proclivity i could definitely see that
0: with this casting and with the story and everything just about outcasts like how it feels to be an outcast you know whether it's because you're an alien or because you're a vampire it's when you gather vampire and bella lugosi and a bunch of misfits together for a movie about aliens wanting to be seen. It's like there's so many Freudian things you can draw from that.
2: That's a great layer to that idea of stunt casting. Like I said before, there's very apparent softness in his heart towards them. You aligning that with his own view of himself as an outsider is a great one. Vampira, actually, we could do a whole deep dive on herself. LA Film Festival, which I programmed for years, premiered a film... In 2012, I believe, called Vampira in Me, which is a documentary about her.
3: I need to see that still. Oh, yeah,
2: it was great. And there is something about both her and her view of herself as an outsider, but then also how she was shut off from a cultural legacy that so many more people should know about her than do that I also think harken back to Ed Wood in an interesting way in his utilization of her or choice of including her in this thing, even if it meant shoehorning her in. And same with Bella Lugosi of being adamant about using this footage that he had, hell or high water. I have footage of Bella Lugosi unfurling a vampire cape. So you know what? I'm going to make a film about aliens. And that's where I'm putting that footage. So I do like that additional tie to it being a kinship of outsiders.
3: Ed Wood inspired a lot of directors to create that stable of performers, especially performers who were down on their luck. I think of what Rob Zombie regularly does with B and C with stars of the past and trying to put them in his films. At least here, if you were looking at A lot of the performers that he did include who had never really gotten a big break. And a couple of them did go on to make other movies after this one. This wasn't necessarily a career killer for all of them. But watching Vampyra, who was never really a big name until long after the era of horror host had died. And then Elvira, as much as I love her, stole from her. Vampire Had to Sewer was a big thing. And even Lugosi feeling like he was going to get his second wind as a performer working with Ed Wood, he definitely gives them characters that aren't poking fun at them. He's utilizing their personas, but he's still letting them be. Actors. So he's like, you're not playing yourself, you're playing a performer. You have a characterization here. You are Bella Lugosi's dead wife. I don't know when you married him, but that's what you're playing. Channel that. You can see that he really treated them as actors first and not just has-been personalities. The fact that he gives Tor Johnson, who was best known as a professional wrestler, he was dubbed the Swedish angel. You're letting him play a police detective who sounds like he's from Sweden. I gotta give him a pat on the back for that. I marveled at those actors
1: in this film that really could act, that Edward allowed them to display the best of their abilities. Bella Lugosi is the first example of that. I was saying while I was watching this film, during the scene of Vampyra's character's funeral... Bella, he has the tissue over his face and he's actually crying. You can see that full emotion in his features. In that same vein of what you were discussing, Vampyra, she doesn't do a whole lot, but just that one shot of her coming at the camera with her claws, her arms out, is so iconic. And it's because he really took use of that persona and made it present and he could say that about everybody in this movie.
3: I do want to say Gregory Walcott, who played Jeff Trent our pilot, actually had probably the best career of everybody after this movie and before this. He had actually done several westerns and military movies including Mr. Roberts and The Lieutenant Wore Skirts. After this movie, he did do a lot of television. He was on Perry Mason, The Sugarland Express, a Spielberg movie, he did Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. He made a lot of movies after this, so good for him. Good for him, because playing the character that he plays, not exactly a feat. And that's the other thing. The actors that actually could act, you're just like, eh? Eh? Lyle Talbot was an acclaimed actor of the silent era, and he's just so blase about everything. I almost feel like the actual established performers come off the weakest here because there might have been an awareness that this was beneath them.
1: I don't know. You can obviously see through all of the performances that Ed Wood was an inept director. I don't think that was his strong suit whatsoever. We have mentioned he's more of a visionary, more of a creative mind. Bela Lugosi is the main exception. In the very few scenes that he's in, he's doing his best. It's not the best role for him, no. It doesn't give him all the chances that, say, Dracula would. You see in these few shots that he can act. That's obvious. To give my two cents as far as reading deeper into the plot and the characters in this film, the pilot, he embodies that manly 50s male that we described in other episodes, other films. He embodies that so well that the aliens, they say, oh, humans are such brutes, they've caused so much destruction, they don't care about the lives of others. And Meanwhile, you have this pilot character who's proving them right. I was saying earlier, when we were watching it, the only two things that this pilot can seem able to do is either see UFOs and not be able to talk about them or punch people and he punches a lot of people many times in this film and like I said he proves the aliens right in that sense.
0: It's just funny that Bela Lugosi supposedly has the best performance in this movie when he had no idea what movie he was in or what character he was playing.
2: (laughs) I wonder if everyone would be a little better if they were just acting blind and everything. There's an interesting implication in the story about the presence of government conspiracies, that the government is hiding things from people. How impacted do you think Ed Wood was at the time when Hoover is running things? There's just a growing sense that the people in charge are not necessarily up front with the American public. And thankfully, we've gotten rid of that. Now everything is just total candor and transparency. But do we think That was in Ed Wood's mind at all? On
1: one hand, he was such a modern person and he had such modern views that I think that's entirely possible that he saw what was happening and was keeping track of it. But on the other hand, a case could easily be made, and this seems more like how he was to me, that Ed Wood... Saw current events and creepy, freaky, audience shocking things and said to himself that would make a good movie. That was a little more what happened as far as his interest in politics.
3: It's worth pointing out that Ed Wood always considered himself akin to Orson Welles. That he idolized Wells, and that was don't
2: don't we all? I also think of exactly. myself as akin to Orson Wells.
3: That was why he directed, he acted, he wanted to be that triple threat. It's hard not to see a few parallels to Wells. Both notoriously could not get projects financed just on their name alone, regardless of what that name meant. Both of them had very strong personalities and could not divorce their personal life from their work. I mean there's always ways to read Wells's work is commenting on his own relationships with himself. When the stardom faded, both of them took very different routes in how to deal with that. Wood became an alcoholic and Orson Wells just ate a lot. He had a good time doing it, but that's how he worked towards the later part of his, his life. That's something that's always intriguing to go back to that concept of directors nowadays fail upward, that the worst director of all time and what, who many say is one of the best directors of all time hold a lot in common.
0: You have to give credit where credit is due because Wells absolutely also did become an alcoholic.
3: Thank you. That is true. and I was also
2: going to chime <laughs> in that is the credit he is due.
3: He also sold the alcohol that he was probably consuming. So at least he's making money off of it in some
0: form. I feel like Orson Welles' ghost would be like, hey, did you just say that I was not an alcoholic?
3: Maybe we'll include one of those Orson Welles wine commercials <laughs> uh, at the end of this episode. Put that soundbite at the end of the episode. That'd be hysterical.
1: Oh, definitely. I actually have always said, and I feel like we're getting really off the rails here, but I've always said that Orson Welles was... A horrible actor, a decent director, and a fantastic cinematographer. And it's the same thing where Wells and Wood just weren't put in the right spots. The puzzle didn't quite fit when Wells was an actor or when Ed Wood was a director. But when they were in the right spots, you got such brilliant filmmaking.
3: And please send all your Orson Welles is not that good hate emails to Samantha Ellis at (laughs) ticklishbooze.com. Everyone makes
1: fun of Dick Van Dyke's accent and Mary Poppins, but I'm just throwing it out there. Orson Welles and the lady from Shanghai.
3: You are welcome to listen to... The episode that I did on the lady from Shanghai with No now, where we talked about his accent.
1: Am I the only person that
0: actually
2: thought it was a good
3: accent? <laughs> it's not the worst Irish accent in the history of Irish accents, but it's not. It's
2: not an Irish accent.
3: I was actually
0: surprised reading about it after I saw it that everyone hated his accent. I was like, oh, I actually didn't think it was that bad.
3: You know who didn't have an accent? Ed Wood. Moving back onto him. <laughs> this was his last real haru. He did make other movies up until the early 70s and then couldn't get anything financed, went into severe depression, becoming an alcoholic. He did end up writing 80 lurid crime and sex paperback novels, including all sorts of short stories and nonfiction pieces that he actually got published in magazines and newspapers. So he did have a huge prolific writing career, even though he wasn't directing. He did write a kind of memoir in 65 where he just told writers to keep writing and he talked about bel lugosi and then the 70s he just said screw it and literally started directing soft and hardcore pornography under a really interesting alias act of talmeg that's vodka gimlet spelled backwards can't say that ed wasn't creative he was a
2: committed drinker i like that What do you guys think of the assessment, we've said it a few times, of Plan 9 from Outer Space being the worst film ever made? After this discussion, after your knowledge, do you think that's fair?
3: It depends on how you define the worst film ever made. The worst film moniker happened for him in the 80s. I think it was Michael Medved who slapped him with her being the worst director ever made. And that was after several decades and after Wood himself had died. Yeah, I mean, if you're going off of movies pre-1980, he wasn't the best director. But again, I feel like he has an understanding of cinematography. I mean, the camera is in focus. The camera is in place. It's shooting what it's supposed to be shooting. So for me, who judges... Worst movies as, at the bare minimum, is the camera in focus. He's not the worst director ever made. I've seen the worst movie ever made. It came out a couple years ago. It's called Showgirls 2. I mean, it's atrocious. It makes Ed Wood look like Citizen Kane. At the bare minimum, I don't think Ed Wood is the worst director. He inspired an indie movement, almost. People who said, hey, this guy was able to make movies with UFO model kits and non-professional actors and Here You Go. There are far more worse movies, both before and after this movie that came out. At this point in 2019, it's a little too easy to say Ed Wood is the worst director of all time.
2: That's true. We've had so many terrible directors since then.
1: I would agree with that. Slapping that moniker on, I think a lot of people agree just because he's developed that persona and that image and that name as the worst director. And director of the worst movie if I really had to come right down and say it it's so hard it's really hard because as you guys say there are a lot of other really bad movies it's a tough competition <laughs> for the worst movie of all time but as far as the ones that I've seen it's pretty bad but I have to love Edwood for his vision and his intentions and I have to love a lot of the actors who are trying their very best
0: As corny as it is, there really is something to be said for the love of making a movie. Because I've seen movies that had huge budgets and stars anything that you could possibly ask for to bring together to make a good movie. And it was just clear that no one cared. No one wanted to make a good movie. They wanted to get a paycheck and leave You can tell the difference between that and this kind of movie, where he obviously had so much love for what he was doing or else he wouldn't be doing it. The world did not want him to be making movies. He would have given up at any point, and he probably would have been better off for it. He had so much passion for what he was doing. There's also something to be said for us, it's so bad that it's good, and I would much rather watch a movie like this than something where a bunch of people that might have been more talented got together and you just do not care what's going on on screen. You just want to turn it off. But you can't turn off this movie. You have to see how terrible it is. In that regard, I wouldn't call it the worst movie ever made. I would rather see. A bad movie made by people who obviously wanted to be there rather than a bad movie by
1: people who had the opportunity and just didn't care.
2: I like that assessment.
3: That's such a good take. That's
1: fair. That gives me hope for this movie. It makes me see it in a new light.
3: What do we feel about Plan 9 from Outer Space? The end of these episodes, do we recommend it? But how do you quantify that in a film that we know is not well made?
2: This film has a unique place in cinema history and also just artistic history. I think it's the kind of thing that any real film lover should take on. If it's this or Glenn and Glenda, maybe something else in Ed Wood's repertoire. But being familiar with these and seeing them, it's trying to tell a story in a different way. He was trying to make film and motion picture but wasn't entirely embracing that, feels like staged plays. Seeing that piece amongst other things, and like Diana brought up earlier, the idea of artists like Ed Wood, beyond the emotional or personal baggage that they had with them, there's something about creatives looking at this leading up to other sci-fi, looking up at it as a lead up to George Lucas. It's a good film to have in your toolbox as a reference point, even if you're pointing it out for, this is how I learned what bad pacing looks like. Thank you, Plan 9.
0: I was telling Samantha that sometimes a movie that shows you what not to do can be just as helpful as one that shows you what to do. There's not a lot of better examples of, if I don't know how to pace well, or if I only do two takes per shot for the whole movie, this is what I'm going to end up with, and that's terrifying.
3: It's definitely a movie you should watch, even as a purveyor of classic film history you have to look at the movies that might not have been box office but that inspired other directors other movements even bad classic filmdom is its own thing there were bad classic movies i was just actually talking to my based on a true podcast co-host william bibiani about how does one look at a bad movie in this era when there was this air of glitz and glamour to it even if it's bad plan 9 from outer space is worth a watch if you are fortunate to watch it with the Rift tracks version um, mystery science theater 3000 has done stuff with it it's a fun watch you will have fun with it you'll finally understand why everybody knows edward d wood jr even if They've never seen one of his movies.
1: I would go as far as to say that it's essential viewing, at the very least in sci-fi, but possibly, as Dre says, in film as a whole. And as Diana says, you have to watch a movie to figure out what not to do just as much as you have to watch the good movies. This is pretty essential viewing. It would be even wiser to watch this movie and then watch something like The Day the Earth is Still, as Dreya mentioned, which takes this concept and elevates it brings a really great and sound philosophical message to it it's just such a part of the sci-fi canon that if you're a fan of sci-fi you can't miss out on it how could you miss out on this movie
3: listeners let us know your thoughts on plan nine from outer space edward d wood jr you can email your thoughts to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on a future episode Once again, we'd like to thank Diana Ellis for being on the podcast this week. Diana, where can fans find and get in touch with you?
0: Thank you so much. Right now, I'm only on Twitter at Kid Cassidy's.
3: And Sam, where can fans find and get in touch with you? What's going on with your writing? Well, I am also on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. Also, I'm on
1: my WordPress, which is musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts every month at ClassicMovieHub.com.
3: Drea Clark, where are you on the internet?
2: I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark. You can also always find me on my contemporary film podcast, Who Shot Ya?
3: And you can find me on Twitter at Journeys underscore Film. You can listen to my other podcast, Citizen Dame, which is at Podbean. Dot com. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, Ticklish Business is available wherever you get your podcasts via ticklishbusiness.podbean.com, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. You can also visit my official website where I discuss classic films regularly, journeys and classicfilm.com. If you are a blogger, Sam and I are actually co-hosting a Summer Under the Stars blogging event. So definitely get in touch with me, either through the Ticklish Biz email or Twitter if you want to sign up. We'll be giving out prizes. We are also going to be giving out a prize pack to... The Ticklish bees listeners, I'm working on finalizing all of that as well in honor of Summer Under the Stars. Should be pretty fun and the podcast is also on twitter at ticklish underscore biz if you want to learn more about upcoming episodes and hear exclusive content before anyone else then consider supporting ticklish business via patreon we have a wealth of amazing perks all your donations go straight back into making ticklish business the premier classic film podcast that it is and if you head over to our patreon you can hear co-host william bibbiani and i look at how hollywood talks about itself in cinema with the show based on a true podcast Our latest episode is looking at the 2015 Marilyn Monroe biopic, The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe. I also have some special interviews coming out to the Patreon with some of the directing and cast members of that movie. And Adam Kautzer and I talk about all the movies that Hollywood likes to remake again and again on doubled features. We just did our Godzilla episode. We're coming up on our next episode, which we're keeping the movie a secret. So all sorts of stuff over on the Patreon that is exclusive to the fine folks that continue to keep the lights on at ticklish biz Amorphous Hq Patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. So what are we doing next time, ladies? I believe we are doing our Summer Under the Stars episode. Is that correct?
1: Yes, we are. I'm very excited about this one.
3: It's going to be really awesome. I'm excited. I'm excited for Summer Under the Stars.
1: Me too. It's my favorite time of the year for TCM. Honestly, I watch all month long.
3: That'll be next time.